0: Definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. Most of the business that is coming to us is coming from the BUCAs, the Blues United, the Cignas, the Etnas. So, a lot of these sophisticated buyers, whether it's Walmart, GE, Lowe's, Whole Foods that have moved to to a reference pricing environment, they're basically saying we've got to change the dynamics of how we buy healthcare as, as part of this process, and there has to be a rational, transparent process that, that we can affect along those lines. Our objective is how do we bring our services and the same purchasing tools and technology that the jumbo market has to the mid-market, and by the way, the mid-market and the small group market but that doesn't have the billions in resources such as the Amazons. these are the folks that actually really need these types of services.
1: Hello and welcome to the Solving Healthcare podcast. In our episode today, we talk with Ed Day, the CEO of Health Services Technology, otherwise known as HST. His company is focused on dramatically reducing the cost of healthcare by leveraging reimbursement strategies commonly used by Fortune 500 companies. But he uses these for small and mid-market sized employers. In our interview, we discussed the current challenges in the healthcare system and how his company differs from a traditional network provider and also how they differentiate between other reference-based reimbursement providers. As you'll learn during this podcast, just being able to reprice a claim with Medicare data isn't enough to deliver value. You have to know how to use the provider's own data and CMS filings to substantiate reimbursement and have a compassionate team to reinforce and defend the plan and the plan participants. We start off our interview with Ed telling us a little bit about himself. Take it away, Ed.
0: Ed Day, CEO of HST. The company was founded in 2009 after several successful ventures, co-founded a company called TC3 Health and we did loss control and risk analytics. Ultimately, it was purchased by Blackstone. Prior to TC3, I had been involved as a pre-IPO for WebMD back in the heyday of Silicon Valley, and obviously that launched into a publicly traded company, uh, a content play. As it relates to uh, the founding HST, there was really two two things that, that I saw in the marketplace. My background, a formal education, international economist, and I looked at healthcare and in the context of macroeconomics and, and the market. And any markets are functioning properly, prices go up and down. You know, you can look at commodities, you can look at, you know, mortgages, you can look at, you know, any service product in the United States, with the exception of healthcare, which only moves in one direction. So we saw a dysfunctional market that we could bring some tools and technology to rationalize. And then really probably equally, if not more important to us, was we saw a social wrong that needed to be righted. And according to Harvard, about 62% of household bankruptcies uh, are due to medical expenses. And we took this to heart in the context of people work all their lives, they accumulate some assets, they hope to retire, hopefully leave, hope to uh, leave something to, uh, to their family, to their kids. And then at the point in time where they most need access to health care at an elderly age, it seems that the dysfunctional market takes that opportunity to affect a substantial uh, transfer of assets to the provider community at the cost of the households. Those two factors, writing a dysfunctional market with a technology, uh, and then also, you know, being able to provide a service for the benefit of the individual house, individuals and their households as they get into their uh, their older years.
1: So that brings up a great point, because what an interesting addition to that bankruptcy statistic is I've heard it anywhere from 62 to 75% of bankruptcy are caused by healthcare related issues. The, I think the more interesting fact is that an overwhelming percentage, highly, high percentage of those folks have health insurance. And so that's what I find is remarkable, is that you echo a point about many people living paycheck to paycheck, and they're literally just one bad diagnosis or an accident away from financial ruin. So I'm assuming that's part of your why, but but would you agree with that?
0: Most definitely. And we have seen the spread between 62 to 75 to 80 62 is, you know, based on Harvard, a, a credible source along those lines. Got it. And yeah, yeah uh, I do believe that of that 62%, uh, it was well over 50%. Did have some type of insurance as part of that, but I think that really, you know, goes to uh, to the crux of the matter is that healthcare is a buyer's beware market, and the way that historically you know, individuals have been billed for services. Is in many situations based on the facility's current budget, where they are in terms of the uh, meeting their monthly, annualized targets and revenue, and also on uh, demographics. You know, we've seen uh, some of the trends, including in our data, where some of the more affluent areas are charged substantially more for the same procedure in a in a given uh, MSA versus low-income areas. So. The providers historically, without any pricing transparency, without any uh, context of cost, price, or value, have basically priced to what they think uh, they can get a return from that individual based on their socioeconomic status or based on their financial need to meet their budgets.
1: Yeah, and you, know, you also brought up an interesting point about a, a macroeconomic review or a view of functioning markets. And if, uh, you know who Ray Dalio is? Yes. Mm -hmm. Ray Dalio has a fantastic presentation on how the economic machine works and would be really interesting to have another conversation about how it applies to healthcare because you don't have the market ebb and flow. You just have essentially an unlimited line of credit, which is your health insurance plan and plans and not really any sensibility that goes into how we affect what would be a rational marketplace, as, as you would call it. And so In terms of the context of the problem, can you talk a little bit more about that from what what you saw and then why you turned that into the company that you have now?
0: The first thing that we saw was uh, huge pricing variations for the same procedures. And so that, in terms of care is rendered, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden uh, you you get a a bill and there was no sense in terms of cost, price, value. There's no opportunity for comparative shopping. There's no opportunity to, to price the services prior to them being rendered, even though in, in many situations, over 90% of admissions, particularly for hospitals, are elective. And so how can you schedule an elective procedure, but you're not able to price that procedure in advance? That was you know, one of the, the issues that, that we looked at. We also looked at it in the context of government data. And we used the, uh, the GPS model as a starting point of how we could take data and affect how we conduct ourselves in buying healthcare. If you understand the history of GPS back in the 1980s, it was strictly in the domain of the federal government used primarily by DOD, NASA, and some other organizations. At that point in time, the Reagan administration made a conscious decision that said, we think that we can have a positive economic impact on the economy, by making this GPS, longitudinal technology available to the public. And as we can see, fast forward a couple decades here in the 21st century, virtually every car, every phone, many applications have that. Obviously, we've seen it to expedite searches, directions, look at the technologies, the industries, the ride share. And so we looked at that as a model as we saw CMS starting to release information, So they started with some inpatient procedures, expanded to outpatient procedures, ultimately uh, has expanded into the physician side. And so we looked at it in the context of how can we provide this information so the folks can take advantage of that as they're purchasing their healthcare. And so we thought similar to the GPS that, that we would be a total technology play where we would serve up the information, obviously under various platforms. And and we were successful in doing that. But given the nature and the complexity of healthcare, we quickly realized that we have things that we have to deal with, you know, patient advocates to to navigate through this whole process, Mm -hmm. Uh, extensive communications as people are transitioning from the traditional PPO managed care environment where everybody is asked to trust that they've got the best deal and that they're getting value in terms of the healthcare rendered. You also started to see CMS release quality information and metrics, and we really think that that's critical because price to us is strictly one component, but when it comes to these healthcare decisions for yourself, for your family member, or for folks who are in life and death situations, price is one consideration, but the quality of the outcomes, the level of experience of the individual performing those procedures, how do they compare to other providers? What's the frequency of their procedures? What's the readmission rate? So having some context beyond the price, which is critical, obviously from a financial perspective, but then also equally important is what is the quality uh, expectation, the outcomes, and the probability of a successful procedure for a fair and reasonable price?
1: So, so Ed, uh, what I'm hearing you say is, is you kind of took a, a lesson from Gosh, almost 40 years ago with GPS technology. So he said, okay, how can we take a similar process where we're getting information on how we navigate something, right? So GPS being the the navigation technology. And if you look at how it's evolved, you're absolutely right. I mean, what was a service, and I'm thinking of MapQuest, where it wasn't always accurate, but it kind of got you in the area and one wrong turn kind of, you know, it could make or break your trip, especially if you're punctually challenged like I am. But using the genesis of that, so it evolves and evolves and evolves and evolves to the point where you have some of the services that we have now. And if I may infer, I think what you saw as the opportunity is taking that same idea of, okay, we have publicly available information through CMS. That's gonna be cost data and quality data. And your job is to kind of help folks navigate the healthcare system as well. And so it's almost like, you know, the service Waze. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, Waze is kind of cool because it tells you if there's a police officer along the way, if there's road hazards and it's the information is shared freely. So am I getting that right? That the sense of your company is not just about payment integrity, but it's about quality as well.
0: It totally is about quality and getting the patient to the right provider at the right time for the right price. And when we're talking about the right provider based on their experience. And so in, along those lines, in terms of the quality metrics, because I, I think we can all agree that thus far, you know, quality is relatively subjective. So what we did is we looked specifically at the leading quality indicators where there's a general consensus. So frequency of procedures, you know, we can all agree if, if somebody has performed, say, a thousand uh, knee procedures versus somebody that's performed a hundred Their level of proficiency is generally better based on on the volume of those transactions and their experience. We also started to look at the the outcomes related to their performance there, and we started looking at it from a norms perspective, both at a a national norm as well as a regional norm, because again, healthcare is still a regional occurrence in the United States. And so frequency of procedures readmission rates, and outcomes in comparisons to national norms, those were three leading indicators that providers, employers, corporate buyers, brokers, and consultants uh, could understand. And we've held that as a starting point with the intent of getting much more granular as the body of knowledge in terms of quality metrics uh, evolved. And I think going back to your point, you know, CMS pays approximately 60 plus percent of all healthcare dollars. So when you look at the repository of information that's you know publicly available, how do you take that information? How do you present it in an understandable manner? Uh, and again, you know, given the complexities, if we start to get into to the details of inpatients DRG, outpatients APC, tick tick codes, you've got a bunch of mumbo jumbo. How do you convert that so that you can get it down to a layman so that they can understand? What procedure, what services are they looking for in the healthcare environment? How do you get that down to a fifth grade vernacular? And then actually one of the latest developments that, that we've developed through, through the evolution of our services, we actually have a body picker. So let's say you have a knee, you can you know, tap on the body picker, you know, look at, uh, on the knee, and then it starts to list out in common layman's language what some of the potential procedures are, and then you can work your way through the system through that process, you can also convert it into cost, price, quality, and identifying the providers based on the CMS star rating system. So yeah, how do you take basically what I would call the government information, a lot of data, how do you rationalize it? How do you get it in a presentable format that a layperson can make informed decisions regarding their healthcare? And so that's where we thought that, you know, this would be a total technology play. But then we quickly realized that unlike the GPS technology, which is pretty standalone and self-sufficient, the complexities of our healthcare system required those additional levels of support, you know, communications, patient advocates, concierge services, nurse navigators. How can you take this very complex system that we've developed and modify it so that people can intelligently make those assessments and then select their care based on informed data, both price and quality to ensure that they're getting value and ideally the best outcome for them or their family.
1: Sure. Sure. So, Ed, I want to make a point of distinction, because as we're, as we're talking about what your company does, obviously there's a, a, what we're emphasizing right now, the qualitative and quantitative approach to helping people select a doctor or select a provider. But can you, talk about, at a, at a very high level, what else you do? Because part of this, obviously, is about reference-based pricing. And so can you can you talk about the other components of your company?
0: Sure. We, we have a host of technology. I think the first technology that we developed that was really a game changer in terms of the market and acceptance within the provider community was Pathfinder. Pathfinder is a technology that allows our medical management partners to price the services that are being rendered for elective procedures prior to care being rendered. So if you look at the way that healthcare has operated historically, it's been a utilization management, what I would call a mother may I process. A member has a medical condition, the provider submits it to traditionally the health plan, the insurance company, uh, along those lines. And at that point in time, what happens is there's an approval process that says we're approving this procedure x amount of days and that pre-auth also includes essentially a blank check so the pathfinder technology allowed the medical management organizations for the first time to enter the information that provider submitted for the approval process during the pre-authorization process and they were able to attach a price but again the, the critical piece of this is that one it's prior to the services being rendered and two the information that is input into the system to price out the procedure, service, whatever may be rendered from the pro- provider, was actually the information that was submitted to the provider. So now we have a pre-certification that not only authorizes a procedure, the length of stay attached to it, but also attaches a price based on the information submitted to the provider. And this was... a uh, this was a game changer for what our services are called value-based payments and we use reference pricing. But the important part of this was that historically the way the, the reference pricing industry was emerging, everything was done after the fact. Mm-hmm. So somebody goes in, has a inpatient, outpatient medical procedure, all the billing process takes place, and then on the back end, the provider gets a, a huge surprise with a dramatic reduction in, in the expenses. So. Services have been rendered. They were not aware that it was reference pricing being applied to it. And you had very frustrated providers. To a certain extent, the the first generation of of reference pricing left a very bad taste in the provider's mouth and started to create some questions whether it was going to be viable long term. But when you look in the context of over 90% of hospital admissions are elective in one way, shape, or form, If you can price out over 90% of the the procedures that are going to be rendered, and again, we're focusing on inpatient outpatient for the high dollar cost components initially and expanding into physician and other services uh, over time, being able to do that before the fact changed the dynamics of the interaction between the plans and the providers and made it much more palatable. The other thing that could happen in those situations is once that pre-certification came in, And let's say for the sake of discussion, it's a procedure at, let's say, Cleveland Clinic. Well, Cleveland Clinic may say, hey, you know, we're a high-quality, positive outcomes organization. We're entitled to more. Once they receive the pre-certification, based on their quality ratings, they could reach out to our organization. and, And again, this is something that we didn't anticipate initially. They could reach out to our negotiators and, based on their quality indicators, negotiate an additional increment So our folks have the ability to to look at that facility, to look at the star ratings. And absolutely, I can tell you that today, our buyers are looking at it. And if there's a differential between a five-star and a three-star facility, and a five-star facility, five-star being the highest DMS rating, people will pay a premium for that fifth star versus the the third star. So giving them the information to, to make those decisions, alerting the providers in advance what they're gonna be paid, giving them an option to get an additional reimbursement based on the the posted performance that they've achieved in the marketplace. Again, just trying to adapt some of the same techniques uh, that we use as consumers when we buy cars, when we finance our house, whatever we buy, and giving people the same almost consumer uh, reporting effect. For the healthcare industry.
1: Yeah, so Ed, I just want I want to be clear though. When you say three or five stars, you know, because what what I tell people all the time is that there is the Zagat rating of providers, and that's going to be you know any hospital system that does a good job of advertising themselves about quality and also getting high customer service reviews of were they friendly and that type of stuff. You're talking about something completely different. You're talking about actual star ratings based on clinical outcomes. Is is that correct?
0: That is correct. So the, the CMS quality ratings MedPAR is based on the outcomes. And so some of the leading indicators that I alluded to, the frequency readmission complications, things of that nature, that is all embedded. In addition, they have proprietary algorithms that makes adjustments for comorbidities, complex situations, things of that nature. So now what you have is an apple to apple comparison for providers of similar services and how they have performed historically based on that data that's been accumulated by CMS. So yeah, it starts to bring in some concrete, tangible results and information that you can, with a high degree of confidence, have a a level of confidence that you're going to have a successful procedure at a fair price.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and I guess I want to ask from uh, your perspective, because you're right, when uh, RBP reference-based pricing started, it was almost like a a reverse back end. It's like, okay, well, you hospitals, you've, you're you surprising us enough with balance billing and all of that stuff. So we're going to kind of do the same thing. And if you don't like the reimbursement rate, sue us. What I'm hearing you say is that you guys have a conversation in advance. So the phone rings, prior authorization happens, you say, okay, based on the clinical information, this service is appropriate based off of all of the clinical indicators. And not only that, based on what we consider a fair reimbursement rate, and that's using Medicare as the barometer. Here's what we're going to pay for that service. Then the doctor and hospital may come back and say, that's not enough based on our quality rating. And they may come back with some ridiculous number. Does that change the conversation that you can have with the patient at that point in time or with the plan sponsor where you can say, hey, do you really want to pay that much more for this service? And then you can have a conversation about quality. Does that happen?
0: It does happen. And so let let me, let me dissect that into a couple of components. So in terms of, you know, when they do come back and and maybe they don't want to accept the price that's been posted on the pre-auth, you know, part of the beauty of the CMS data is that we can actually pull up the regulatory filings that that provider has submitted. Again, many of us know if you're a Medicare provider under federal law, you have certain reporting requirements, both in terms of cost, price, value, outcomes, you know, that type of information. And so when they do push back initially, you know, potentially on the price, because again, they've been in a position historically in the United States to dictate price regardless of any other consideration. All of a sudden we pull out their regulatory filing and and I'm just going to, you know, throw out some numbers just for the case of illustration, but, you know, these, these are real. So, you know, we, we look at a regulatory filing for, a procedure. It shows that the Medicare allowable price is $10,000. It shows, again, the cost information, and this cost information is submitted under federal law in terms of the integrity and accuracy of that cost information. It's $8,000. So they come back and say, well, you know, this procedure is $100,000. So what we'll do is we'll pull their regulatory filing. We'll have a conversation with that provider that says, hey, you communicated to CMS. Your cost is eight. For a over 65 years old, you're, you're willing to take $10,000. we are bringing you a, for the sake of illustration, a creditworthy, employed person covered under a group plan that happens to be 30 years old. You were, we're not willing to pay you 100000 but we are willing to pay you a reasonable number because we know that as an employer in the commercial side, we don't have the same kind of purchasing power and volume with CMS. So we generally peg it at Medicare plus 40, Medicare plus 50. And if you look at the the RAND study that's been published, Medicare plus 40 on average nationally yields 20% profit margin to the provider community. So we came in with a model that said, we're going to hold you accountable based on your regulatory filing, the fact that we're bringing you a younger population. We acknowledge that we don't have the same purchasing volume as CMS. We're willing to pay you a premium. And I can tell you that, you know, if you talk to uh, to any business owner in the United States, if you were to get paid a 20% profit margin on any service or any product that you sold and you were guaranteed, that's a very fair return. And I'll say that with a caveat that that applies to metropolitan markets. Once you get into secondary and rural markets, you know, the margin needs to increase a little bit more because obviously they don't have the volume of transactions to support the lower 40% of Medicare margin.
1: Yeah, you bring up a a great point, and that is that it gives you a bit of clarity about, you know, at least having a fair barometer of value where you're going to look at what a reasonable rate of reimbursement would be, which is Medicare. You're giving an allowance for the fact that you don't have as much leverage as the federal government but also that there is ample profit margin. And so, but but also in terms of the transparency, what, what I find is interesting is that when you look at a traditional network comparison, there's no transparency whatsoever. And unfortunately, when you're talking about health insurance carriers, they're not gonna show their hand of whatever discounts for whatever hospital system might be compared to their competitors. And so it's a very, it's not even opaque. It's impossible to, do any type of qualitative assessment. So in your world, you're saying, hey, look, we're getting rid of that. We're saying, hey, look, we're using a reimbursement methodology that everybody understands. But taking it one step further, we're going to get out in front of it. And so I guess the question I have is understand that what what I hear from most folks is when we talk about reference-based pricing, it's what about balance billing? What about if somebody doesn't like it, and there's a potential for a lawsuit or putting my employees at the at the end of a balance billing question. My response typically is if you're with a traditional insurance company, many of your folks are getting balance billed. You just don't know it. And so could you walk through based on your model, what do, you, what do you typically experience in terms of activity of folks not accepting 140% and how many of them get litigious, if any?
0: So let me, I'll come back to the balance billing, but I think you raised a couple of good points here. The way that the market has worked historically. I would call it a rigged market, and that's why prices only move in one direction. You have these PPO contracts. You are assured that, trust me, uh, you have the best price, but when you start to ask questions about cost, price, or value, it's confidential. We can't tell you. So that's the environment that that we've been operating under. The market's rigged. You're not privy to the information. You're not privy prior to services being rendered. And then you are basically asked to pay a price that's been dictated and imposed on you or your family uh, without any context. The other component, since we are looking at CMS, by definition, when, when you look at insurance, historically, we've looked at usual and customary. And when you recognize that CMS pays over 60% of the healthcare spend in the United States, they de facto have established the prevailing rate or the reasonable and customary rates are the usual and customary rates applied in insurance. So we were taking the same logic that they've applied to the, the commercial insurance market, the difference being that we were being fully transparent on the accountability along those lines. In terms of the, the balance billing, definitely you hit it on the head. Even with a PPO contract, you know many members are subject to balance bills. And I think probably the, the poster child is a case in New York where a New York state employee went to a PPO provider, they had a procedure, one of the assisting physicians was not a, a PPO provider, and even though they had their traditional, what we will call the as the Blue United Cigna Aetna, in this case it was the Blues, they were billed an additional million above and beyond what the, the plan paid. interestingly enough the individual that they uh, did the balance billing for their traditional health plan happened to be an attorney who basically thought that this was an egregious violation of any type of uh, health insurance filing with the state or the expectations when the policies were issued and along those lines they got in dissected it and came back and had a major adjustment on that transaction so the important part is even with a traditional health plan and that's a you know, dirty little secret that the, the traditional plans is they don't talk about the balance bill situations that their members have like that. Many emergency room physicians are not PPO providers. Those are subject to mm-hmm. the, you know, the bill charges and, and whatever they will bill along those lines. So that happens in traditional health plans. Now, when you move to a value-based plan that uses reference pricing, you definitely have the uh, the potential to, to have that balance bill situation. But in our model where we talked about the Pathfinder technology where we price it prior to services being rendered, the first thing when a provider does balance bill, we pull out that pre-certification that has the authorization, again, based on the information that that provider submitted and has the price. And so that's our first line of defense is going back to that authorization where we authorize this care at this price. And now there's a disclaimer at the bottom of the authorization that says, if there's a complication extenuating circumstances obviously we're going to revisit it and make an adjustment for that price but with that technology we were able to get the potential balance bill pushback rate to less than two percent because again over 90 percent of uh admissions are elective and so we were really down to emergency procedures we were down to situations where for whatever reason that provider did not review the the pre-certification but when we have provided the pre-certification, then at that point in time, it's we told you what we were going to pay you when you approved it, you agreed to it, and now uh, maybe, let's say for the sake of discussion, they didn't look at it, it's what was going to get paid. We can come back and say, we're, we're going to be reasonable. We want to close out this transaction. We don't want you know a member, particularly if they've just gotten out of, out of the hospital, to be hit with this huge balance bill. So let's come to a reasonable number that makes sense for everybody, again, based on cost, price, and value. And so really, at that point in time, you're looking at emergency care and those unexpected situations. Obviously, those are not going to get priced, but with the appropriate plan document language, you you do have the ability under, if it's an ERISA plan, you do have the ability to hold that provider accountable based on that information and the plan document. And let's keep in mind that the obligation for an ERISA plan is legally between the plan and the member. The only way that a provider has standing is to the extent that the plan will uh, grant them standing to bill that member, have any communications along those lines. And what we've done is we've uh, put uh, contingent provisions in there that makes the conditional endorsement or acceptance, whether it's on the draft, whether it's on the ID card, that that ties the provider's ability to bill, communicate with the plan based on their acceptance of the reference price for the value-based plan.
1: Hmm. So, I mean, what I'm hearing you say then is that you have some basis for them not balance billing simply because they've... They've gotten a prior authorization. They've gotten an estimate of the charges. You said, hey, if something really bad happens or unexpected, we'll review it. But you just can't, you can't balance bill for the sake of balance billing. Exactly. Right? And if you do, uh, not a legal ramification, but there's at least a precedent set about you had all of these confirmations. What's changed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what I used to hate. When I was, uh, so I used to be the regional sales director for the local blues plan for mid market. And I used to hate getting those phone calls about surprise bills. And the worst one I ever had was a CFO of a company. He and his wife were going somewhere. She was pregnant and they just went to a hospital. And it just happened to be not contracted. And baby's fine, had to have an emergency C section. But he essentially was given a $50,000 bill after the fact. And there was nothing we can do I, I couldn't help him defend that, and uh, in your world, I mean obviously there's going to be fewer chances of balanced billing, but when there is, how, how would you defend that person when that type of situation will come up
0: if it's a value based plan the the conditions that we impose on our clients to provide our services is we provide them with the plan document language so that they can have a, an effective value based plan to allow us to enforce the the ERISA provisions uh, of the plan document, including all of the the contingent provisions relating to providers being able to bill. And generally what happens there is, once the provider understands what the the plan documents are, what the legal obligations of the plan and respectively the member for their co-pays deductibles, for the most part providers will uh, tend to be reasonable in the context, okay, this organization understands the cost. They have my pricing information. They have my, my CMS regulatory mm-hmm. filings. It's easier for us to negotiate, settle this claim in a reasonable manner. And, and by the way, we'll continue our traditional practice of billing everybody else that doesn't have the information. Literally becomes a, a line of least resistance for those providers in terms of for them to inflate charges for our clients the process of having to interact with our staff and our team members along those lines, it becomes a much more costly proposition. And so what happens in many situations, once the providers know that we are representing these groups, after five or 10 claims, they'll generally say, hey, let's go ahead and submit your your recommendation. They understand that that we have the pricing, the cost information to hold them accountable. And we'll come up with a a number that's reasonable for everybody generally up to two times medicare for a younger healthier population is a very very reasonable number that you can close out those transactions the other component that we have is that our patient advocates have the uh the background they're former hospital administrators they you know they've worked on the other side and and they're trained specifically in the context of having a collaborative relationship with that provider on a couple of bases. First, we know that we're gonna have other patients, other clients and claims through that provider. So it becomes an educational process that says, you know, we've got these numbers, here's the transparency, here's your CMS regulatory filing. How do we come up with a reasonable number? And again, most of our negotiators or patient advocates have worked in some type of hospital and or provider billing environment on the other side. Now they're using those skills the information that and the tools and technology that we're giving them access to hold them accountable to come and settle this at a reasonable basis. But I think the important part, and you started to touch uh, on it earlier, is that the first generation of reference pricing was adversarial and legalistic. We take a collaborative, positive approach in the context that We need these providers. We need these hospitals in our community to to serve our family, to serve our friends. And so so how do you have a positive, collaborative dialogue that comes to a reasonable resolution for all the parties along those lines that makes sense for everybody? And at the end of the day, you pay a fair price based on value.
1: When I hear patient advocacy, I think of clinical advocate more so on the side of if i have a particular condition there's chronic support that type of thing
0: so our patient advocates are a focused primarily on, on navigating the particular plan claim or situation that they encounter and it's interesting as an organization you know we've got some brilliant engineers we've got a host of staff but but the patient, we consider the patient advocates to be the really the, the front line and probably the most critical component of our company. Yes, the technology and yes, being able to serve it up and, and hold providers accountable and things of that nature. But think about it. If, if you go through a, a medical procedure, you're, you know, you, 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 come out, you know, whether inpatient, outpatient, uh, and you're in a recovery mode, and then all of a sudden you get this, you know, in your situation illustration that you, uh, presented, uh, where the, uh, the maternity was a 50,000 in, in addition to, uh, to what would be paid uh, by the benefit plan. That to us is the most critical component. You're you're medically trying to recover, and then all of a sudden you're socked with that that huge bill, uh, balanced bill that you're potentially liable for. How that is resolved, how that member is treated, how those concerns are uh, resolved and allayed so that that person can continue the recovery, that's the front line that's where the rubber meets the road and that's why these patient advocates you know as we said you know we can we can save people millions tens of millions of dollars but if that interaction with that patient who has just had a medical procedure and is hit with this bill if that's not solved to their satisfaction we as an organization have failed and having that patient advocate to to walk the member through we go through and part of that is they assign all communications to uh, HST's patient advocates. So there's no longer any communication with the members. Any communications relating to that balance bill have to go through us through that assignment provision. We also invoke the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act that says this bill is being contested, which the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act basically says that you cannot impair their credit while there's a dispute on the, the billing amount. So we go through a host of steps in terms of take the patient out of the equation, let us handle it, let us make sure that there's no impairment to their credit because it's one thing to get that big bill on the balance bill side, but the other component is how does that impact my credit? How does it impact my ability to buy a house, buy a car as you're in a recovery stage? So the ability to take them out of it, to have a professional deal with it on a rational basis and to bring it to resolution That's the measure and that's the key of our success. And I can tell you, we walked into plans where we've saved them 50 million plus or whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden the meeting, even though we've saved them a lot of money, the focus of our meeting discussions is how did you deal with that 2%? How many of those were resolved to the satisfaction? How quickly did you get that patient out of the equation and let them get back to their recovery process?
1: So in terms of what I heard you say is the level of, people that are affected is that it's less than 2%, but let's not lose sight of the fact for 98% of the people and for the plan, you guys had a significant impact. And even for those 2% at the core and at your mission is to successfully resolve that, take the patient out of the middle by using the Fair Credit Reporting Act and other mechanisms so that they can worry about healing and you worry about the settlement process.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, that's, so you know, that, that, that's the most, that's the most critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people that are, that are getting that balance bill while they're trying to
1: recover. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bad enough that you had whatever medical event just happened and you really need to be focused on healing Add the stress of a hospital telling you, they're going to ruin your credit if you don't pay them. I mean, that's just an additional stress that will not, will not help at all. When you go from a traditional network based program where you say here's a book or go online or you know it's very easy to define what your what your what your task is when you're the patient you're like i go to a network doctor and that that's that's it right but when you go to reference pricing you say okay go wherever you want right um how what tools do you give the members to help them make the choice. You you talked up front about quality, but how do you make it easy for a member to determine if hospital A or hospital B will even accept reference-based reimbursement and, and and what is their quality rating based on what is going on in my world?
0: So we we have a, we have a couple of mechanisms uh, to, uh, to support the consumer uh, I think the the first and, and the most common ones uh, are we have uh, smartphone applications mm-hmm. where all of this information uh, is available uh, on their handheld devices so you know you can you can look at uh, at, a, at a hospital and compare hospital a to hospital B in the same uh, you know geographic area look at their star ratings you could look at the the cost structure along those lines so it's the, having the tool for the members to make an informed decision on the smartphone apps is critical. Now having said that, we also have portal technology because not everybody potentially has smartphones as we found out throughout the country. So having the ability for HR, for the payer, for the broker consultant to have access to that information to, to facilitate the flow for the folks that don't have the, the smartphone application. So we, we have the, the tools and technology available uh, on a variety of technology platforms to make it available to the consumer. Because, again, at the, at the end of the day, you know, wh- you know, while we are servicing the employer groups, the, the most important um, you know, party in this, uh, this whole equation is the member and how they start to consciously select the care versus being directed by, you know, as you indicated, either a website or a directory where there's no context in terms of cost, quality, or otherwise. And so ha- having those technology tools is, is critical. Uh, and I think the, the other area, uh, and this is uh, an area that we're evolving to, is if you look at the, the traditional referral patterns from a PCP to a specialist, uh, that's really been you know based on tribal knowledge. Mm-hmm. So a provider you know, goes, uh, makes an assessment, and in the referrals to a specialist, Again, there, it's not based on quality, it's not based on outcomes, it's not based on frequency of procedures. Usually it's a provider they know, they may have played golf with them. There is no clinical or other basis to make those referrals. And so the next uh, evolution of what we're looking to do here is to include the basically facilitating from the PCP to the specialist and communicating the quality metrics with the intent, again, going back to to where we started, getting the right patient to the right provider for the right procedure at the right time versus the way the healthcare system has operated historically, which has been based on tribal knowledge or physicians that are pals and and making referrals along those lines.
1: Now, I want to take a step back because I want to make sure it's understood that you guys are not a third-party administrator. You work with TPAs. And if you had some advice to give to an employer, a CFO, CEO, VP of HR, about choosing a reference-based reimbursement company coupled with a third-party administrator, what would be that advice?
0: So first of all, there's a lot of third-party administrators out there. It really falls into the the 80-20 rule. 20 are really good, 80% are are average to mediocre. And then I think the, the other area that I would say is If you're going to identify that 20% of the third party administrators that are really good, they also have to have a background in the interacting with, whether it's us or another reference pricing vendor, having that program knowledge, because look what we've talked about, the complexity of the the pre-auth process, the back-end negotiations, the balance bill. And that's one of the things that we tell our clients, this is not a casual undertaking, this is a massive change to the way you bought healthcare historically, and, and you have to prepare for yourself for that. First of all, you're dealing with change, you're dealing with a very complex environment in terms of how the reference pricing is, how you apply the Medicare, the quality metrics, how those claims are adjudicated. There, there's so many potential pitfalls. If it's not a good uh, third-party administrator, if it's not integrated with a program that uh, they know how to administer and incorporate versus a traditional, again, a traditional PPO, they load PPO rates, push the information through, they're not dealing with any of the issues that that we've outlined here. So having having that third-party administrator with an organization that you've implemented these programs, and there's a huge learning process uh, for the third-party administrator, just as there is for the employer, for the broker, uh, and for the, uh, the member, Uh, And that becomes critical, and quite candidly, when we started this back in 2009, we were working through third-party administrators, and we quickly came back, and early in 2011, we came back and said, you know, distribution through third-party administrators is not a viable uh, vehicle. We need to work with the brokers and consultants, because the brokers and consultants are the ones who become the quarterbacks to facilitate this complex environment. Uh, in terms of the navigation of all the complexities that we've discussed. So a TPA left its, its own devices is uh, with a, a reference pricing vendor is not ideal. You need that expertise from the broker or consultant to basically hold all parties accountable. And prior to these programs going through, making sure that the due diligence process uh, of the performance of each one of the parties. And then the other component is holding them accountable on a quarterly basis in terms of the value that's being rendered, the savings off bill charges that are being achieved, how is the pack working, what's the return on investment, how does it impact stop loss. As you can see, this is very complex. Mm -hmm. And without a broker or consultant that the quarterbacks and holds everybody accountable on the back end, we just found that a third-party administrator on their own device selling this was not as effective as having a good broker consultant that could hold everybody accountable and bring the parties to the table, facilitate the communications, place a stop loss. And the stop loss is critical here yeah. because since we're reimbursing on a cost plus basis, most reference pricing programs uh, with our preferred stop loss partners, we get a 20% reduction off the spec from a versus a traditional BUCA PPO. And then the, uh, the ag getting an additional five to 10 points what's critical about that is the the carrier that is writing the big checks for those shock claims acknowledges and places the value for a very well-designed and executed reference pricing program.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree with that totally. And that you, you want to take credit for, one, not just the ability to go from book discounts to reference based reimbursement, but really, what are the handoffs that you have in place? And what are the incentives that you have in place to essentially get people to think about care differently. So I, I like to say that the four most expensive words in healthcare are go down the hall. And what can you do to activate the employees and the family members to think differently. So it's not just about go down the hall, it's okay, where else can I go, that might be of value to me. In terms of how you guys make money, could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Again, I'm going to go back to version 1.0 of, of reference pricing. The, the predominant models there started out as billing on a percent of bill charges, billing on a percent of savings. Our model, when we looked at it, that, that we wanted to have a positive impact on society, that also related to how do we deliver the maximum value to the plan and to the member, and the way that we structure our services, it's a per-employee, per-month basis so that there's some predictability In terms of the expenses that they're paying for this so it's it's a it's a known expense on average we we provide about a 40 to 1 return on investment uh, to our clients we have some clients that their plans gouge them dramatically you know we get a hundred and plus percent uh, the 40 to 1 return on investment is is what is the average for our plans achieving so if you look at the market returns you know whether it's interest rates whether it's a stock market, we're delivering huge value to one of the highest expense factors for any corporate organization or any employer that provides group benefits. Again, part, part of the strategy is being fair, being transparent, maximizing the value to the plan and to the member with a fully transparent basis.
1: Well, wow, that's great that it's just straight heads up pricing because it's right, the, the old pricing model of doing a percentage of savings, the only thing that really does is guarantee that you're going to get a pretty big increase from year over year for doing the same thing. Um, and no, just- no,
0: absolutely. And if you, if you look at how these bills are inflated in many situations, particularly on some of the shock claims, the vendor fees can actually exceed the, the medical cost of care, which again, it, mm-hmm. one is absurd. And two, it basically obviates the whole purpose of, of any type of plan like this.
1: Yeah, to- totally agree. And if I had the choice I mean, I told uh, one of your competitors that exact thing materialized and I said, I would honestly rather pay the hospitals this amount because it, it was you added in their fees. It actually was more than what you were getting through a traditional Blue Cross network. It, he was shocked that we even had the conversation. But to me, it's just a—it—it it is an excessive amount of money if you're paying somebody as a percentage of savings
0: just to to expand, in Texas, there was a public sector client that had moved the reference pricing under the build charges model. They year end uh, brought Milliman to uh, to do an audit. And what they found was that about eighty five percent of the savings from the reference pricing plan accrued to the vendor. The plan got about fifteen percent. At the end of the day, the municipality, the broker came back and said, "Hey, For all this change, for all the communications, for dealing with the balance bills, 15% does not make sense accruing to the plan and the member. So in our model, virtually 98, 99% of the value through the per employee per month billing accrues to the plan and to the member, not to the vendor.
1: Last question, Ed, is uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or your company, how should they do that?
0: Hstechnology.com. So that gives you uh, you know some information, and then it also de- uh, gives you access to if you're looking for a patient advocate, if you're looking for the marketing department to explain the uh, the program. That's that's generally the the easiest way. And then I, I know that we do come up when folks are looking for reference pricing or value based programs. A lot of the search engines you know, will populate us as top three, mm-hmm. top five.
1: Yeah, you're, you're on the first page. You type in HST. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, and. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation and, and uh, I've learned a lot more about your company. I, I sincerely appreciate your passion and all that you're doing to help solve healthcare. So thank you very much. Yeah.
0: Mike, and we, we appreciate your time. Like I said, we, uh, we, 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 need the, uh, the the quarterbacks, the brokers and consultants mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to launch this effectively. And, and, I'll, and I'll just close, you know, we, we do have employers that, that reach out to us directly when, you know, you know, through the press or whatever, you know, you know, have, have heard about what we've been able to achieve and we won't even entertain them unless we have a broker or a consultant that can, like I said, quarterback
1: mm-hmm. and
0: guide them through this very complex process.
1: Well, if you want to give them my number, you, you can. And I guess for the folks that are listening to this, that are not my customers, you know, you can contact me as well. <laughs> um, yep. But, but definitely. Mike, <laughs> we'll plan on that.